0: I'm going to ask that you would take them and turn to the book of Revelation, the second chapter. We're going to begin reading today with verses 8 through 11. For those of you that may be joining us and for those of you that are joining us online, we welcome you. We're so grateful that you're able to be with us today. We would look forward to seeing you in person as soon as it's possible, but we're grateful that you're here with us. This is the fourth in a series that I've been preaching out of the book of Revelation. We've been going through it step by step and verse by verse, and today the title of this message is Smyrna, Persecuted but Prosperous. Smyrna, Persecuted but Prosperous. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, the scripture says this, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty Yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. As we have started these letters to the seven churches, we started these last week, we began with Ephesus, and we're exploring what the Lord is saying, not only to these specific churches, which we believe were actual churches, but also prophetically what he is speaking to us today. We understand that the... The city of Smyrna was about 40 miles from the city of Ephesus. And I mentioned last week that if you were to look at a map, these seven churches are in roughly a circle in in what would be Turkey today. And in fact, it would have been kind of a postal route in the order in which they were written to. And in the biblical days and times, Smyrna and Ephesus were rival cities. They were kind of competing to see which one of them would be considered the first city of Asia or the best city. Smyrna had a slightly smaller population than Ephesus, and it's interesting that in its history, from the years 600 B.C. to 200 B.C., Smyrna literally, as a city, died and was non-existent, and then it was reborn. Alexander the Great planned it. It was one of the first planned cities where things were in a specific order so that it could function well, and that city was built after his death. The town of Smyrna was known for its loyalty to Rome. They were very strongly influenced by the Romans. and In fact, just a few years before the Christian message came to Smyrna, it had won a bidding war over ten other cities to build a temple in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And so while it was known as a city really strongly for its loyalty to Rome, the Christians, on the other hand, the letter that is written to the Christians, were indicating that they were strongly, strongly loyal to Christ in the middle of this time. And so at Ephesus, when we looked last week at this letter, the Ephesians Ephesians were warned of false prophets that might enter into the church. He was warning the church of those that were going to try to seep in and to pollute their doctrine and pollute their beliefs. Smyrna, on the other hand, is a church that was a persecuted church. Its pressure was coming from those on the outside, and it was strongly, strongly a persecuted church. As we look today and go through the passage together, you'll recall from last week that we talked about every factor... In the letters, as they begin, start with one of the seven wondrous qualities that John had seen when he described Jesus as, what he had, as the vision of Jesus that he had seen. And then following that description, there is a diagnosis for the believer. There is something to be addressed, followed by a directive to action. And then there is a danger to consider. And finally, there is the declaration of the reward or for those who will conquer or overcome. And so as we move through each one of these parts to better understand what Jesus is communicating to this church and ultimately to what God is saying to us at Grace Assembly and us as individuals this morning, we start with the description of Jesus that is given here. It says in verse 8, these are the words of him who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. We're described... Jesus in the way that he is the first and the last. And this was an especially appropriate greeting to the Christians who lived in a city that were fighting with Ephesus to be the queen city of, of Asia at this time. There is a Lord who stands and wanted to remind them, both the church at Ephesus and its murder. listen, I don't care where you are in the fighting of trying to be the best of the best, but here's the deal. I stand as first, I stand as preeminent over every claim of any city, over every claim of an emperor, over every claim of a person or a government, and I want you to know that I am the first, I am the last. Everything rises and falls on me and not on you. And then he goes beyond that and he says to them, do not fear death, it's not the last, I am the last. Now this is especially important For a church that is facing persecution when the the worst thing that could happen to them was that they might be put to death. And he is trying to tell them from the introduction of this letter. I am the first and the last. You are somewhere in the middle. Everything else is in my hands and so there's nothing for you to fear. We look at this and say why did Jesus introduce this letter and introduce himself to this particular church this way? I think it's this. Oftentimes as human beings, we get this false image of ourselves. We think that we are the highest order, and that comes because, you know, obviously we live longer lives than bugs and insects and dogs and cats and horses. And so before long, we begin to think that our lifespan is of such that we are the king of this jungle, this earth that we live in. We are the ones that are in charge of this. And i believe that the scripture is trying to remind them from the perspective of god you may think that you're the king of the jungle you may think that you have a lifespan that is long you may think that you take care of everything but i want you to know from my perspective i am the first and i am the last and that you your whole life is like a little dot on this immeasurable line of eternity and from my perspective i see things differently than you do now we look at this and I recognize that we have kids that go to our church and teenagers and young adults and I recognize from that perspective, life might seem like a long time. But then you get older. And the older you get, the more you begin to look back on life and you recognize that it travels at incredible pace. We, in fact. The older you get, the more you begin to recognize, I can't believe I, you know, I can't believe I used to be that age. It seems like it wasn't very long ago, but life flies by and those of you that are older than me are all smiling and nodding your head. Because we recognize that our life is just a breath, a vapor in light of eternity. And Jesus is very clearly at the very outset of this letter trying to bring to us an understanding that I see an eternity here of which you are just a dot. Don't you for one minute think that you are the first or the last because it's me. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end, the Lord says. And then he tells the church, not only is he the first and the last, but he says this. I am he who died and came to life again. That can be translated from the original Greek this way. I became dead and live again. I became dead and live again. Now you would think that that's appropriate to a town like Smyrna that for 400 years had been a dead town before it was resurrected to life. That meant something to them. When we describe a person and we talk about their lifespan and their life and and look back in history, such as Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, for example, we look back and we don't say that he died and lived. We say Lincoln lived and died. There's a natural order to that. But here is Jesus, one unique person in all of history that absolutely flips that order. It said he became dead. In other words, he lived before that. He became dead, and then he lives again, and he lives today, and he goes on living, and Jesus wants so to identify this church with his resurrection because he knows what's coming for them, and he knows that in order for them to be able to have a hope in all of this, they're going to need to know that I was dead, but I live again. You have hope regardless of what takes place within your life, and it's a beautiful description that Jesus gives in his introduction because he describes his death as in past tense and his life in present tense. I became dead. I live again and forevermore. And so this is the way he introduces this letter. And then he comes to the diagnosis of the believers. We look in verse nine as he begins to look at the healthiness or unhealthiness of the church in Smyrna. And he reassures them when he states this. I know your afflictions. Some of you may have a translation of the Bible that uses the term tribulation here. And I want you to know that this is not the great tribulation he's speaking of. He's speaking of afflictions, the difficulties of life. I know your afflictions, your tribulation, and your poverty. Yet you are rich. I know the slander, which also may mean the blasphemy in which people speak about you. Of those who say that you that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He knows he's writing to a letter of a church that has maintained loyalty to him in spite of some severe difficulties. In fact, he identifies three of them. First of all, he talks about their afflictions. Interesting thing about this word, the afflictions, is it? it is one, a word that describes a burden that crushes and then while being crushed, releases something. So if you were... Uh, to take a rose, for instance, and you take it and you begin to crush it up, there is in that crushing process the release of a greater fragrance to it than would have been done if you had just smelled it when it was in its original form. And so he's talking about, I know the fact that you are in a situation where you literally are being crushed by those around you, but because I live within you, the fragrance that you are sending out to the world is greater than it would have been had you we all pray that we would be a church that would be left alone. But the Lord is saying, there's something in the afflictions that you're going through, in that crushing process, that allows the real me to be released in you so that other people recognize he who lives within you is greater than he that lives within the world. And so this tribulation comes from a persecution toward these people. And he says, I understand that. You are sharing with me in the sufferings. And he says, I know your afflictions. And then he reflects on the nature of what's being experienced in that town. He's saying, church, you need to know that what you are being hit with is being dished out at me. And because you identify with me, you become the target. In other words, they hate you. They persecute you because of me and so because of your identification with me they will be opposed to you they will always ridicule you the world you live in will never accept you and in some cases the acceptance is far less than in other places and what he says to them in the middle of this persecution is i know what you are going through this fact that this church is going through A turbulent time, a tribulation time, a crushing time, and an affliction leads to the conclusion that as he's writing this letter, he is not interested in getting rid of their persecution. However, he is interested in letting them know that he is with them through it all. I will tell you that this is one of the most difficult letters for us as a church to go through. There are some sermons I can't wait to share with you. There are others I'm going, oh no. This is one of those oh no letters. Because to the church at Smyrna, you would expect the Lord to say, I know your affliction and I'm going to stand in the middle of it. I'm going to remove you from that. I'm going to have you escape from that. I'm going to be your protection. But he doesn't say that. He simply says to them, I want you to know that following me is not one of easy believ- believism. Following me is not going to be one of easy escape I'm not going to simply vaporize all the issues that you are facing but what he does say is while escape may not be possible for you and you may never know the answers of why what I need you to know in this is I know what you are going through I don't know about you but I've had times in my prayer I'm going God you have no idea heaven forbid You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm thinking. You don't know my pressures. And he's going, I know. I know what's happening. He knows what we go through in one degree or another, every bit. The second thing that the church was facing here, not only does he share that he understands their afflictions, but he shares their poverty. He says, I know your poverty. you are rich interesting thing about the greek words here is there's two words for poverty that are used in the bible one of them the best way for us to understand it would be it's like a college student Uh, you know a college student when they go to a football game or basketball game and they know they're going to be on tv holds up big signs mom and dad send money you know and so there's this idea that there is one that is taking care of them that they are under somebody else's control that they need this but they also understand that they're putting forth this effort because Hopefully, when they are all done with this, they will be able to make a living for themselves. And so that's one kind of poor. It's it's kind of a temporary uh, setting for that. But the word that is used in this letter for poverty is one of destitution. It describes a person who is literally without, and unless they have somebody come and help them quickly, they literally will perish. And Jesus is saying to them, I know that you are destitute. The reason being is that in the type of persecution that they were having, it would not have been unknown for those in leadership to rob them of their property, to kick them out of their homes, to destroy their businesses, to leave them penniless and without anything. They literally were destitute, living on the fact that God alone would provide for them. And so in the middle of this persecution comes a destitution because of their identification with Jesus. And he says, I know your poverty. I know things have been taken from you. I know you've been robbed. However, you are rich. You are rich. I wonder what psychologically that would do for this church who had lost everything. That spiritually and psychologically the Lord is saying, I know what it looks like from your perspective. But let me tell you, from the perspective that I have in heaven, this little dot of existence that you're in, what you are going to get at the end of this is going to make that seem like nothing. That if you will just hold on and just be faithful, I promise you that the conqueror will receive a great inheritance and that we are joint heirs with the Son of God and that all of the riches of heaven will be bestowed upon those who while on this earth may look like they're destitute... But from the perspective of heaven, you are rich beyond your ability to understand. What a contrast, especially as we get to the last letter of the church to the Laodiceans, who was a rich church. They, from the outside, had everything, and yet the Lord looked at them and said, You think you're rich, but you are poor. You think you're rich. You're destitute. What that tells us is this. You cannot judge an individual... You cannot judge a church by its cover. It would have been easy to look at this church in Smyrna and on the outside say that they have nothing, that they aren't any worth at all to the kingdom of God. Because you could not judge them by the monetary sign that they had. You could not judge them by the external aspect of their church. You couldn't look at them and say that they were a blessed church because of the, ad, the adversity that they were going through. All of that looks to the outside as if it was a sign that God has withdrawn his favor. Yet that was not true here. God had not withdrawn his favor. So we look at this church and from the outside... It looks like a church that doesn't have it all together. It is so poor that it can't send missionaries into the world. It's so poor that it can't take care of its own people. The members don't even have enough to feed themselves. They are poor. But the Lord says, you are rich. And the word for rich in the Greek is Pluto. And it's a fascinating play on words that Jesus uses as he writes this letter to this church. Because Smyrna was a wealthy, wealthy city. And he looks at them and says, you who look like the poorest in Smyrna are the plutonaires. You're the millionaires. Those that think they have it all together will have nothing. You who live in poverty are rich in my eyes. There's a value to the richness of the spirit. I think sometimes we take for granted the joy that we have in even being able to worship the Lord to enter into the presence of the Lord, to sing in your cars and you listen to the music and we are blessed with the freedoms that we have and knowing that we are rich in the presence of the Lord. The third thing that he commends them for is that they have endured slander by those that are Jews but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now we know that in the book of Acts one of the chief sources of opposition to the early Christians was the Jewish community. But... This would have been a stunning, stunning lack of political correctness, even in that day, for Jesus to say, they serve in a synagogue of Satan. That was an eye-opening, unbelievable statement that Jesus makes in accusation against the Jewish people of that time. And he begins to say, listen, as a result of this, you are a suffering church and you're suffering from those who call themselves Christians, who call themselves Jews, who call themselves my people. And they are just hammering you. And I want you to know that they serve in a synagogue of Satan. In other words, there are a lot of religious people out there who's going to persecute the church. There are a lot of religions out there that say they serve God that are going to be persecutors of the believers in Jesus Christ. He says, I just want you to know that while it might look like a religious service, it might look like a religion, it might look like this, they are a synagogue of Satan attacking my people. And one day they will stand and have to give an account for that. And then there's this stunning aspect of what is not within this verse. Because he doesn't tell the church to do anything about it. It would have been nicer if they said, I want you to go ahead and go burn down their synagogue. Okay, we can do that. I want you to stand in the street and I want you to fight with them. Okay, we can do that. I will be with you as you just take them over. Okay, we can do that. He doesn't say any of that. He simply says, I know you're slandered. I know you've had everything taken from you. I know your affliction. And he says, I know you're gonna have to believe that the fact that I know is comforting enough to you in all of this. And the fact that Jesus says I know comes to us as an understanding that he is speaking from his own personal experience. From his experience, he's been slandered. From his experience, he's been poor. From his experience, he's had persecution. And so he himself has passed through this tribulation. He has passed through these things. And so he looks at this church and he goes, I want you to know, I know exactly what you're going through. To the Corinthians, he said, I became poor so that you might be rich. In fact, to this very moment, Jesus knows what it's like to be slandered. Millions upon millions upon million times a day across our world, people are taking his name in vain. They're using his name as if it's a curse word to down and demean others. Day by day, he goes through what it feels like to have his name slandered. And interesting enough, slander is still a weapon that the enemy uses against the church to try to paint it ideologically so that the Christians, those that follow Jesus Christ, are known as a funny group or a bunch of narrow-minded bigots. We are living in a day and age where we have a Supreme Court nominee who has been made fun of mercilessly this week because she calls Jesus Christ her savior and is not afraid to say, I have relationship with God and I have communication. We speak to one another and they're acting as if she's lost her mind. And I sit back and said, this is the slander on the church. Those that are without have no idea the joy that we have in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says, you will be slandered, and you will be made fun of, and people will laugh at you and title you things that do not really matter because of me. It's because of me. And he commended them by saying, I know, I know what's going. And then we get to this directive to action. In verse 10. I told you that this is not an easy message to preach and This verse is why. And I'd like you to underline it, not for the fact that it's gonna be a huge benefit to you and bless you, but it's an eye-opener. So this church that's going through such pain, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I'm going, really? That's as encouraging as you could get. There's no condemnation of this church. There is no correction to this church. Just counsel. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Now, I'm sure in their mind they're going, more more suffering? Lord, that's your answer to the problems that we're going through? Haven't we gone through enough? We've gone through tribulation and poverty and slander. And you're telling us when we're asking you, Lord, speak to us. And your words to us are, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. That's not encouraging. And I begin to think about it. How many of you have had times in your life when You have just been through a grinding season and it feels as if you're barely making it through and you can just begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. maybe, Maybe you're just about to get your finances in order or maybe you're just about to get to the place where you're healthy again and everything is about to fall in line and this bad string of reverses that you've been going through, you can just see the light and just as you're reaching for it, something happens and you're shoved back farther than you started. And you're overwhelmed with, I can't believe this is happening to me. God, where are you? What's happening? I feel slammed down when I was just about to get there. And the Lord has obviously not taken some of the helpful seminars today to help us get out of adversity. And there are four things that we find in Scripture that there are things that we learn from adversity. Things that we learn from suffering. One of them is sometimes we suffer adversity because it's disciplinary. We step out of line with God's will and there can be a discipline. The Corinthians were warned of this even in their communion. Don't take communion casually. You need to know what's going on because there's a discipline that comes if you do that. Sometimes we go through suffering because it's preventative. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, I've been given a thorn in my flesh. I am suffering over this, but it was to prevent me from thinking too highly of myself. It was to prevent me from from being arrogant. And so preventatively, I've gone through some suffering. Sometimes suffering is educational. In Hebrews 5, 8, it says, the Lord learned obedience through the things he suffered. If he learned obedience, then there are things that we're going to go through that we are going to learn. It's an educational process for us. And then, fourthly, and probably what was most appropriate as it related to this church here, was sometimes suffering is simply associated with your witness. It has to do with this matter where the early Christians were beaten for their faith and they were praising God in spite of it. They were praising Him that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And I have discovered in my life that it's really easy for me to praise when things are going good. There's been times I've walked into church and I didn't feel like praising at all when things were going hard. In fact, sometimes it made me angry to look around and see how easily some of you were able to praise when I was going through such a difficult time, and I'm sure some of you have felt that way. And there are things in life that I don't understand, how difficult it is to praise God when everything seems broken around us. But I do believe... That in the middle of this, God allows us to see something in him. There are things I don't understand. I don't understand why when we pray for somebody to be healed, they're not healed. But what I have noticed through this is in the middle sometimes when we are the ones that are suffering. And for those of you that have visited others in the hospital, I know you've been in that situation where you're going in to bless somebody. And you walk out of there and you are blessed by them. And you're going, how did that happen? Because somewhere in the middle of their suffering, they said, I am not waving a white flag. I am waving my fist in praise to the Lord because regardless of what I may be going through physically or what I'm going through spiritually or what I'm going through in my life, the enemy will not overtake me. I refuse to allow him to enter into the center area of my life, which is linked with God. And so in the middle of this, I am telling you, enemy... I may be suffering, but you are the loser here because I am staying firm with the Lord and he will gain victory in this area of my life. And the witness that you carry in the middle of that situation is an incredible testimony to God and all that are watching you in all of that. It says, though you slay me, yet will I trust And he goes on to say in this verse, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. I think it's clear here that the Lord is saying we don't need to praise him for everything. Because there's a lot of things that may happen that are from the devil, but we can praise him in everything. And that. Preposition is an important, understand the difference in that. If you're praising God for everything, then you can wind up praising God for things that Satan is doing. But if you praise God in everything, then you can say, God, I recognize that this may not be your exact plan for me right now, but I want you to know that you are the king eternal in my life, and I'm going to praise you because you are working everything out for my good because I belong to you. And so he's saying to this church, the devil is going to throw you in prison. I did not do this to you. The devil is gonna throw you in prison. And Satan means the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, the name devil means deceiver. All of his personality is at work against this poor church in Smyrna. And he said, you're gonna be thrown in prison, but you need to understand that it's just gonna be for a short time. And there's, the number that is given to us is 10 days. Now, there's a lot of different numbers in Revelation. I really believe that this doesn't necessarily mean 10, 24-hour periods as much as it means that it's going to be for a short time. This this season is not going to last for long, is what he's telling them, for a short time. And then in the middle of that, he said, if you will just remain faithful, even because when you're in prison, they're awaiting trial, and the sentence for that trial could very well mean Death because they would not give up their faith in Jesus Christ. He said, if you will remain faithful, even to the point of death, what you need to know is that you will never have to experience a second death. There's a punishment that's coming that you won't face. Now, the interesting thing about this, and I told you when we started this, this study of Revelation that it, there, sometimes it's a rather circular book. It's not necessarily chronicle or chronological. And here's one of those things why because in this second chapter, he talks about a second death that you won't even understand if you haven't read chapters 20 and 21. It's not till you get there that he describes what it is because in chapter 20, verse 14, he says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. In chapter 21, verse eight, it says, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so he talks about something that's gonna come that if you don't know the end of the book, you don't even know what he's talking about. But here he clearly draws this comparison. For you, Church of Smyrna, you are about to enter into eternal life because I am the first and the last. I see it all. I know what you're going through. And it's earning for you a reward. And then he says, but for those of you that are enemies of this church, there is a second death that's coming to you. One of you is going to face an eternity with Jesus Christ. The other of you is going to face an eternity without him. Without the presence of the Lord. And he said... There is coming a time, and he encourages his church by saying, the tide is going to turn. That which you are facing now, they will face for eternity. Now, that which you are facing for ten days, a short period of time that's going to come to an end, they are going to face forever and ever and ever. I want you to know, church, hang on to the end. The victory is coming. The crown is coming. It's only a short time, but hang on. You will be a conqueror through him who gives you the strength. Caleb Succo states this. If you have Christ, then all of your pain is temporary. If you don't, then all of your pleasure is temporary. Kim, would you please come and prepare yourself as we get ready for communion? There's a reminder that he gives to the church in this, in this very short letter this morning, he said, he says, I want you to know something. I'm I'm warning you ahead of the fight. He says, there's some facts that you need to know before you get into the fight. Before you get into them, I need you to know that I am the first and the last. I want you to understand that I know everything of the between. I know everything of your life. I know what you're going through. I have got control of this even when it seems as if everything is out of your control. This struggle does not take me by surprise. So keep your footing firm on me. Secondly, he reminds them of the purpose behind the pain. If our struggles are part of a plan, then they will always come with a purpose. Your struggles are not random. They are not meaningless. And the believers needed to know this, and I believe that this is important for us today as well. They needed to know that their struggles did not mean that he had abandoned them. How many of you, the first thing that things start to go wrong in our life, the first thing we think is, where are you, God? We, we, we feel abandoned. We feel like he's left us and this is what the onslaught is like without him. He's going, no, 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 no. I'm warning you ahead of time that there's a purpose behind the pain. I need you to know, not only have I not abandoned you, I'm also not punishing you. Because the true nature of their suffering was spiritual in nature. The third thing that he says is he reminds them of the crown behind the cross. There's two words for crown in the New Testament. One of them is the crown that a ruler would wear. That is not the crown that he talks about here. He says this is a victor's crown. The crown that you're going to get when you endure hardship and suffering is one that goes to the winner of the race. And here's, here's the sobering part of this letter. The Lord offers no earthly solution to their suffering. He doesn't promise to take away their difficulties and that's why this is such a hard letter. He doesn't promise to magically materialize and answer all their needs. His promise to this church, as it is many times to all of us who are believers, is this. Will you remain faithful to my mission even when it's not easy? There's an interesting thing that takes place in Scripture in the last days that says there's going to be an outpouring of His Holy Spirit upon all flesh, simultaneously the love of many will grow cold. I've always looked at that and wondered, how how can that be the same thing, the same time? And and here's the reason why. Because there are so many that have come to Christ with the idea that when I do so, my life will be blessed and everything will be easy. And the moment that it's not, then I didn't sign up for this, God, and I'm not going through suffering for you. I signed up for the blessings, not the suffering. And so they will quit loving God. At the same time, he says, what I have provided for you is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will sustain you and strengthen you for whatever you may face, knowing that your life is but a vapor. And so he asks us, are you willing to be faithful to the mission even if it's not comfortable? And I think that's the word for Grace Assembly today. I'm gonna ask that you would reach down and take your communion cups if you would please. I don't believe that martyrdom is facing us in the next month or in the next year in America. I don't think that whoever is elected president is going to campaign on the theme that I'm gonna kill all the Christians. I think we're relatively safe from martyrdom for the time being. But can I tell you that not every country's churches are going through what we're going through right now? There are some. There is a suffering church in our world. The number of people that are martyred for their faith would stun you around the world right now. I was in a conversation with a pastor this week and he said, do you realize, he says, we have some churches that believe they're in the middle of the tribulation right now in other countries because of the cost that it takes for them to stand up for Jesus Christ. How does be faithful unto death relate to us then? We might say in our lives, you know, Lord, I want to remain faithful even when it gets difficult, but are we faithful unto death? Are we willing to to be faithful though it costs. Because this beautiful letter, it's a strange letter, but it comes to us. And we hear so many many voices talking to us about what success looks like and and prosperity looks like and our well-being in an air-conditioned life. But here is a word that comes to us at Grace Assembly today. And the word is this, are you willing to serve me even if it makes you uncomfortable? are you willing to serve me even if it's inconvenient so here's the question i ask as we prepare ourselves for communion is jesus more important than your comfort is jesus more important than your comfort A few years ago i had a chance to speak in a communist country and i was speaking to one of the pastors who had literally Scars all over his hands and his arms and his back from being imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ where the guards would literally come and put their cigarettes out on his skin. Scars all over. And I was getting ready to speak to them. And I just simply said, how How do you do it? And tears running down his face, he said, I counted an honor for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to proclaim his name and suffer even a little bit of what he has suffered for me and I came back home to a wonderful life knowing what I have left them there thinking Lord we don't know anything about what it means to be a suffering church that's why we pray for a suffering church and I believe that's why Jesus is asking us to keep his mission will you stay faithful even if your comfort is at stake And we can sit here right now and come up with really easy answers, but let me tell you something. I'm grieved at how little money most born again Christians give to the mission of Jesus Christ in America. Those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, on average, give less than 2% of their income to the cause of Jesus Christ. My comfort is more important than his mission. I'm grieved at how difficult it is to recruit a volunteer. For just a couple of hours once a week to help, whether it be in nursery or or children's ministry or ushering or, or helping here. Because why? Because my convenience is more important than the mission of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a suffering church, but I won't give up a couple of hours. I worry about how comfort has affected the way that we view everything in our environment. When the Lord is saying, would you... Be willing to engage in my mission even if it costs you. Or will the love that you have for me grow cold? Because that's not what you thought serving Jesus was all about.